0: Claire Parker and I'm Ashley Hamilton and and this this is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Book Club Club. the podcast for us Claire Parker and Ashley Hamilton are two best friends who love to read and do you know what they like to do after they read talk about it dish and really sift through the truth behind these books we're not just looking for the words on the page we're looking for the words in the author's mind what they wanted to say what they hoped to say what they will regret revealing and of course the
1: medium is in a podcast and the way we get our thoughts across are by saying the words we think in our brain i've noticed some of you hate our voices And I do want to take a little moment to real quick get in here and say the way we speak cannot be changed. It's too late for us. The vocal cords harden around the age of eight or nine. That's why it's impossible for me to learn a second language. This is how I speak. This is how I will speak forever. If you are compelled to say you hate the way I talk, feel free to just turn off
0: the podcast. We love constructive criticism. If you are saying something so stupid as talk different you can absolutely choke on my dick until you have a high-pitched squeaky voice like mine i am hoarse a little bit while saying this i feel like i sound sexier than usual so sorry if that's making you feel like you won this argument you absolutely didn't i'll be back better than ever after a little bit of vocal rest and i will squeak until your fucking ear until it falls off unless you stop being rude
1: Once again, we're always happy to hear constructive criticism or feedback in the DMs where we could have a conversation. But if you're going
0: to come in and be like, I hate something unchangeable, you can choke on Ashley's bad old (laughs) cock. And if you're having fun. We asked you to help us get to 1,000 reviews, and baby, we hit it right on the money. Today, we hit 1,000 on the dot, and I want to say thank you to our reviewers. Princess Pod, you are the absolute princess of this pod. Queen of Pop, Britney Spears is here. Linny Girl, 11, crank it up to 12 even. Virgo Sweetheart, do you know what? For you, we believe in astrology. Gabby 19231, thank you so much. We adore you. Cassandra four one three one one one. That's a lot of lucky numbers right there. Thank you so much. CP two six four four. So that she's going to be listening to this podcast while running a marathon. And I just want to say good luck, and we'll still love you when you have no toenails. Pi four eight six. You know what? Have four hundred eighty seven slices. Yo, it's me, fam. Thank you for being here, fam. Lenny Del Rey. Summertime happiness with this review. FGB. 802. Thank you so much for your GB review. Valsified. This is a verified. Great one. Zangelis. Thank you for being the Angelus of my heart. Yamile smiley face. Thank you for putting a smile on my face. I love K Rudolph. You know what? Me too. Jasmine G23. Oh my God. Is that Michael Jordan? Jewel is cool. The coolest on earth. Short VB chick 20. Do you know what? For you, we'll make an exception to our talls only rule. Sammy Coop 37, thank you for cooping it up. Hennis 5YC, thank you for everything we see in this review. Lainey 47182, I friggin adore you. T bride two thousand and nine, my favorite year. Nicknames taken one two three four. Well, that I think you chose the perfect nickname. The Broadneck Store, Oh my god, they should give you a reality show. Sierra Dawn eighty nine. Hell yeah, let's party till dawn. One and Jen, you are number one to me. Iowa Kasha, thank you for all of the corn. Shelby Porter. Thank you. You're the best. My thoughts. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Your gal, Sal. Sal, you are my gal. It must be Melanie. It literally must be. Melanie B, Melanie C. It could be any of them. Ricky Bobby. Thank you for being first. Never last. Your pal, Cindy. You are my pal, Cindy. Wow. Wow. Thanks for the review. ACIC. Thank you for being A1. Dancing defense. You don't have to defend your dancing. You're amazing at it, Evelyn. T T L C. Thank you for the TLC of this review. Olay inca is okay to me. Maria S Reg. Thank you for the regimen. Cat Bellows, thank you for bellowing such a nice review for us. PP Girl 98 I hope you're doing okay. Calendar emoji, I hope you didn't miss that appointment. Happy Nicole D, thank you. This review made me so happy. Awkward Katie, do you know what? You don't seem awkward to me. You seem like a gem. Lizetti for the win. I'm so happy you're winning. Schmackney560, hell yeah, that's a sick jump. Lady Venge, we'll call you if we need vengeance on somebody halloweeny888 happy halloween kk taylor lautner is hot heart you know what you're damn right dre 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 thank you for this review today jenna meow love this review from a cat blueberry checks after my own fucking heart what a great username thank you for being the best cereal in the world gross star you're a beautiful star to me pf pants thank you for the takeout mommy sorry mommy sorry mommy sorry you are a smoke show oh snap she fine no you fine h listens thank you for listening Bobaman 19 cheers to you bob Kitty J, thank you for another cat listening to this podcast. Gabba the Hut, thank you for coming out of your hut to give us this review. DBZ slash Lincoln Park Freak, do you know what? I think Lincoln Park deserves more justice. And that is all for this week. Thank you, you guys, for helping us hit 1,000 reviews. It really means so much to us. We are so fucking happy that you're here. Yeah, we really appreciate it. It means a
1: lot. Just like we promised, we will stop reading the reviews Out loud at the beginning of every episode. However, because we do want to keep thanking you guys for writing these reviews, we will continue this at the
0: end of each episode. So if you need to duck out early, we completely understand. People have places to go, places to be, people to see. But if you want to hear us say your name and you haven't yet, you can still pop one in there. Anyway, Ashley. Yes, Claire? If you were to write a memoir, what would this last chapter be called? This week's chapter would be called Back to the Simple Shit. Nice. Slash do what makes you happy. Long chapter of the title. <laughs> you guys, I was in a colossally grumpy mood earlier this week. I was a real weepy moany bitch. I don't know how else to describe it other than I was in my feelings. I was in my bullshit. I really broke it down to basics. I was like, what are the things that make me feel very happy? One of them is seeing dogs. And my friend was dog sitting and she was getting annoyed with the dog that she was dog sitting. So I was like, well, give me the dog. And so I had the dog for the whole day and it made me so happy. People don't think about that. They should do one of those things where you just go pet a dog and that makes you happy like a therapy dog. Have they thought of that? (laughs) This dog was so cute. We had so much fun. We took so many walks. It was the best day. You know how much I love to take myself on walks. And it was nice to do it for someone else. (laughs) And then I also love hanging out with my friends. The things I mostly love are dogs and hanging out with my friends. It's actually not that hard to lift me out of a funk.
1: (laughs) Now I feel great. You need to write that on a post-it note somewhere to remind yourself. Like, are you having a bad day?
0: Have you seen your friends or tried to pet a dog yet? I also, you know, could potentially try therapy, but... I've given up that dream for you (laughs) a long time ago. (laughs) So yeah, that's what I recommend. Just like really thinking about the stuff you like and then doing it. I mean, honestly, it sounds stupid, but I do feel like that's good advice. It's not bad advice. It's not bad advice. And I get that people have jobs and things and shit to do, but also fit in the little things you like to do because boy, oh boy, does it lift you right out of my own grump. Anyway, Claire... Yes. If you were to write a memoir, what would you call this week's chapter? Deeply humbled. <laughs> I'm excited to find out. As you get older, you feel more comfortable in
1: yourself. All those things where everybody's like, oh my God, I'm so awkward, I'm so awkward. I feel like you start to let them go. I really do believe being awkward or seeing something as awkward is a choice. Like if you just choose for it to have not been awkward, it wasn't. There's nothing wrong with sitting in silence or if something happens and it's like you trip and fall or whatever. It's only awkward if you allow yourself to feel uncomfortable in it. If you trip, people trip. Things
0: happen. If you can turn it into a funny story or you can turn it into a mortifying event that haunts you forever.
1: Yeah. So it's your choice. And I feel like something I'm good about is being like, I just refuse to feel awkward if I have a wedgie, if my shirt's inside out, if I slip and fall in the middle of the street, whatever. But then I went to my friend Sophia's house this week. She lives in Boston. So I get on a bus. I'd never been to her house before. She has very sweet parents. I'm taking the tour of the house. I'm saying hi to her mom and her dad's in his office with the dog. So I go in and I'm like, hi, Carlos. And like, I say hello and he's sitting in his chair and I couldn't tell if he really wanted to hug or not, but he was kind of turned towards me with arms open. So I said, fuck it. I'm giving him a hug. (laughs) I'm making small talk because I'm almost 30. I'm not her high school friend sleeping over. You got to
0: talk to the parents. I'm an
1: adult sleeping in an adult's home. I got to go say hi. I'm like, thank you so much for having me. The dog was there. I was like, can you believe I've never been here? I've never met Pumbaa, blah, blah, blah. I'm going on and on. Four to five minutes. Four to five minutes of just small talk is a good amount of time. Anyway, finally, he's like, all right, well, I got a little bit more work to finish up, but I'll be out in a minute. And I go, "Okay, great. And as I turn to leave, I look up. And sure enough, he has been in the middle of a work Zoom call (laughs) this entire time. And he is like low-key a very important man. And I looked up and there were four adults waiting, I think, to determine the future of a country. And I walked in and I looked at Sophia and I go, how long did you know for? She goes, not the whole time. And I'm like, but how long? And she goes, for a while. And I go, why didn't you do anything? She goes, I didn't know how to stop it. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe I go home now. Maybe I go home.
0: <laughs> Take me back to the megabus. I'm done. Yeah, I like was just talking shit about being socially awkward, but I feel like very often I walk away from social scenarios and be like, did I make an ass of myself? Should I hate myself right now? Like, are they going to think about how annoying I am for the rest of my entire fucking life? I've done a lot of mental Work to be like, no, if they're thinking like that, then that's an annoying person. No one is thinking about you as much as you're thinking about you. You got to get a grip. But like the thing you did is really embarrassing. No, it wasn't. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had that experience. I feel like it's important. I need to be humbled. I think you grew. I don't. I feel like I left cowering.
1: I grew inwards in a shrivelly manner, like a penis in the cold. You came back from Boston. And I thought she looks
0: much penisier. You go, is that a raisin or my best friend? But I love raisins. And so I thought, I don't know, maybe <laughs> she's always looked like that. <laughs> For this week's memoir, we read a book called Man Repeller, Seeking Love and Finding Overalls by one Leandra Medine Cohen. For those of you who don't know, because this is a weirdly niche celebrity, she was a fashion superstar, still kind of is, a fashion influencer, a maven and of the moment. She created a blog called Man Repeller that was very important to a lot of
1: people. I would say it was the fashion blog of our age in the way that Tavi Gunvulson's Rookie Mag, I think, was the it publication for the people five to eight years below us.
0: Yes, I agree with that completely. I feel like a lot of people either know exactly what I'm talking about and had their heart and soul wrapped up in this blog for a good couple of years, or they've never heard of it and the word man repeller is like, what the literal fuck are you talking about? Claire. Yes. What did you know about Leandra Medine Cohen before you opened this book?
1: I knew that she was a famously thin woman whose shtick was wearing clothes that were bizarre looking. I knew she had a very famous fashion blog. I did not follow it, but I was aware of its importance and impact. I then had a second wave of knowing of her through you. Longtime listeners may know that Ashley did, in fact, work for this one famous fashion blog. And I've been thinking a lot about her since the Cutting Room Floor podcast, which came out this summer and really revealed her as a deeply entitled person who had no capacity to review her own wrongdoings. Yes. Ashley, what did you know about her before you opened this book?
0: Well, she had at one point been my employer. So honestly, quite a bit more than I knew about any of the other memoirists we've read. <laughs> I have sat in the same room as this woman several times, but much like Isabella St. James reuniting with Heff, I do think if I ran into Leandra Medine in the street right now, she would not recognize me. I did work for her for over a year, and I just want to clarify that the longest conversation I had with her one-on-one was my exit interview. I was fired. It was my very first firing of many. (laughs) Trendsetter alert, firing Ashley. (laughs) (laughs) They did it first. I'll give them credit. Anyway, so I worked for her. I had read the blog for quite a long time before I worked there. That's why I applied. And I got the job. And I moved to New York with like three weeks notice. And then, boy oh boy, our dream's not always as you imagine. But I'll get into that on the Patreon. I'm going to tell you guys the absolute nitty gritty of what my experience was like. Basically everything. I'll give you guys everything. So if you have specific questions, message me ASAP. But I wanted to read this book. I'd never read the book I'd only read the blog quite religiously and then I worked there so I literally knew the people who were writing the blog and talked to them quite a lot because we were you know co-workers but I I really wanted to read this book separating it out and trying to go back to a time before I knew her personally and I wanted to read it from this place where people still adored her I had like a full-on mental breakdown two chapters into this book where I was like, how did we like her? How did anyone like her? So I tried to go back. I tried to read it from that headspace, but it was so hard to read this book not knowing what we currently know about her, which was A, knowing her personally. Then this summer, as you mentioned, she did this podcast called The Cutting Room Floor where she sounded awful. It really like revealed everything, but it was so hard to read this book separating that interview and knowing her personally from the Leander Medine lore so let me ask you this yeah before you worked for her the ashley that was applying to work at man repeller what did she think of Leandra Medine? at her height what was the hype okay so i want to thank a couple of people who i dm'd with on instagram really quick i talked to a couple of people because i was like what did i fucking like about this what was the hype and i talked to it with a couple of people including Mac's sister and it really helped me clarify my thoughts i think the hype was that she was really green lighting thoughtfulness in anything the thing that i thought she represented i carry very close to me since she sort of greenlit this idea for me, which is that anything can be thoughtful if you want it to be. There's this idea that girls' activities are so frivolous. Fashion is frivolous. Entertainment is frivolous. Pop culture and all that stuff is just like a dumb activity. I really like thinking critically about fashion. I think it is really important and I think it's really interesting the way people visually express themselves. People having this outlet to wear crazy things and be an individual try weird shit. Sure, some people take it way far, but if that's what they need to do, I'm happy that they feel okay doing that. She really was the Forefront of
1: blogs pre Instagram. Something i had always thought about her, even though I didn't follow, was that her appeal was that she was the first person to take personality and put it into fashion. Yeah. That this is what I'm wearing because of who I am, and you're going to get it in the writing. She was always thought to be very funny. There was a sarcastic, tongue in cheek style to her voice. The way she talked about it wasn't with the seriousness of Vogue, it was
0: like talking to your best friend about something that you love, but seriously? Because it wasn't the seriousness of Vogue, but she was so fashion-y, is it introduced you to a lot of the nuances of fashion that felt inaccessible. So a lot of the designers that I'd never even heard of, obviously they're the big ones, like everyone's heard of Louis Vuitton, but she would talk about these small indie designers and in a really fashion 101 kind of way where it helped you really learn the ins and outs and like make you feel knowledgeable about these topics that had felt so off limits to a person below a certain pay grade, honestly.
1: I also feel like it wasn't just fashion, it was style.
0: Yeah. And it was style mixed with a personality that reminded you of somebody you might know. Yes. One thing that I've realized reading this book, I think a lot of the really positive aspects about her were kind of made up by her fans. I think she touched on this interesting topic that a lot of people really resonated with and then did all the heavy lifting for her. So when I had heard of Man Repeller, someone described it to me as the concept of a man repeller is an antithesis of women's magazines who are saying, wear this to make a man fall in love with you. The point of a man repeller is like, wear what you want. They'll like you or they won't.
1: The appeal of man repeller is it was this idea of women for women. But the problem is, and if you look at the name, a man repeller first and foremost
0: centers the idea of a man. Right. Which is why in their rebrand, they became just repeller. They were like, we don't want to center the idea of a man, but they'd already been canceled for being like racist and not inclusive Everyone was like, yeah, that wasn't the problem anymore. <laughs>
1: but it is funny because I think, and we'll get to it. I think our central thesis about this is the public perception of Leandra Medine was not even her public. Persona. Yes. I think we misunderstood what she was trying to put out there. And when she said, I'm a man repeller, and we said, oh, this is a woman who's dressing for herself. She actually is deeply boy crazy and weirdly traditional and
0: conservative in her values. Yeah. And... That is what comes through in this book. It really does. I think what I learned from this book and from the Cutting Room Floor interview is mainly that there was something that people wanted to see. She wasn't that, but she was the closest anyone had ever seen. So they just gave her that role. And she never wanted it. And she was never it.
1: Not only was she never it, but she did not want to grow into it. Yes. So before we keep theorizing, let's get into... Man Repeller. Seeking
0: love, but finding overalls. And then also finding love. Spoiler alert. She does get engaged at 22. Second spoiler alert. She does get married at 23. Third spoiler, alert. she then immediately
1: writes this book. So we are now reading the memoirs of a 24 year old. All right, let's begin. So the way we're going to go through this book is because it's 12 essays that tell the story of her first 23 years up till her wedding.
0: Every essay is named after an item of clothing that she feels best represents that story. So let's start with the first essay. The tent dress, or as I would
1: like to call it, the beginning of the antithesis of her entire career. In this essay, she talks about going to kindergarten, wearing a dress that is a very formal dress that she was supposed to wear to rush Hashanah. She begs to wear it to school because she has a crush
0: on this guy. She wants to look beautiful because all of her friends have a crush on this guy and she's trying to be like, no, look at me, though. So the way she is dressing specifically is for a fucking six-year-old's attention.
1: So she goes in. Her two good friends at the time say that she looks like a baby. She spends the rest of the day humiliated until recess when the boy that she likes comes and holds her hand and gives her a kiss on the cheek. This is a huge deal until that afternoon when somebody starts the rumor that he had done it on a dare and he actually hates her and now Leandra has cooties.
0: It turns out she actually does have cooties because he had come back to school too early still with an active case of chicken pox which he had just spread to Leandra and her big fluffy dress. I have to say if I was five and I knew that a boy kissing
1: you would give you cooties and then I literally broke out in chicken pox I would have stayed a virgin until I died. That would have been a true trauma in my eyes. But the trauma is actually about whether or not the dress was the
0: right choice.
1: We then fast forward later to her next kiss, which isn't until she's like 16. She's at a dance. The guy just kind of kisses her out of nowhere. She's again wearing a dress that she claims is ugly and that men would
0: hate. But again, she's kissed. He turns out to be gay. She finds out later in life that it turns out he's gay. At this point, it's just that he goes to a different school than her and at his school, he's kind of a dork. And so she's ashamed that she ended up kissing this guy who it turns out is dorky. And he's dorky because...
1: Because he's crusty. They call him Crusty the Snowman because when his ex-girlfriend gave him BJ's, his semen was crunchy in her mouth. Which I will say, I think you should go to a doctor if you have crunchy semen. That can't be right.
0: Yeah, I just really wonder what was happening here. It sounds like he never got a BJ. You know when boys have never touched a girl's boobs and they're like, oh yeah, you know, they're like silly putty in your hand. (laughs) And she was like, yeah, I blow him all the time and his cum comes out like pop rocks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then there's a third kiss. And so basically this whole chapter is to set up one that her whole life, she's always wanted to put on a fancy outfit to try and get more attention from men, which has been futile. Of course, the irony is, in this chapter every time she puts on an absurd outfit to get a man's attention she does end up getting kissed
0: yeah she does get his attention and then she just ends the chapter in a very Lena Dunham-esque here's where they all ended up one of them didn't like women and one of them still lives in his mom's basement she says
1: As for Kevin, the last I heard, right on his wall, he was still living in his parents' house, finishing up college a couple years late. This man is probably 25 years old. I wouldn't say we have to write him off for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah, and I also think 25 is a generous assumption because they were, I think, in the same grade. So he must have also been 23. And I think that's one year late. A lot of people do an extra year or take a year off at some point. I actually do want to lean further into this for a second. Still living with his parents. She wrote this book right after she moved out of her parents' house at 22 to move in with her husband. At 23. So at 23, she was living with her parents. Then at 23 and a half, she was living with her husband. I mean, she was also living with her parents. This judgment is so fucking tacky.
1: Also, it is weird to be like, I've always dressed for myself. I don't care what men think. Anyway, here's some outfits I put on for men that they hate. Anyway, every time I did put on this outfit, they did kiss me. This theme will come back. One quote that I do want to bring up from this chapter that I think is important is she talks about going home and feeling embarrassed. And her mom was like, oh, they were just jealous of you. For many years, I didn't realize it wasn't true. And every time I dressed like an asshole, her example of dressing like an asshole is my hair was very frizzy and I wore many a gold hoop earring. Asshole behavior. And someone called me out for it, male or female. I was certain they were either in love with me or simply wanted to be me. And I do think that that is the truth of her blog that we need to get back to, is that Man Repeller was not about a movement of women dressing for themselves. Man Repeller was about the inner workings of Leandra Medine, a woman who was sure you were in love with her or wanted to be her. Yes. And it it all starts right here with the tent dress.
0: Chapter two comes with a heavy trigger warning. Heavy trigger warning. We're also going to make assertions. So if you're sensitive about eating disorders, I really want to say skip ahead a little.
1: I know that we said that we weren't going to talk about eating disorders until Ashley went to therapy, but it's just, we can't ignore this part. This is one of the most insane chapters we have read out of the 45 books that we have read. I think this might be one of the most dangerous books I've ever laid hands on, including Portia de Rossi's. I was shook to the
0: bone reading this chapter.
1: So this chapter is called The Bermuda Shorts, or as I would call it, an ode to anorexia, the only thing worth having, the best accessory money can't buy.
0: So it starts with her talking about her body as a youth. She said she wasn't particularly thin nor particularly heavy until the summer after eighth grade when she gained 30 pounds at camp. I don't know why she didn't go to summer camp until she was in eighth grade. That feels insane. but. She talks about this Jewish rite of passage, going to overnight camp. I did it. We all do it. It's also a pretty privileged thing to do. So it's pretty fucking funny that she, once again, will not acknowledge her privilege. And she
1: even goes as far as to say, my dad was like, why are we spending $3,000 to send her away to live in a cabin for four weeks?
0: Yeah, and she went to some weird ass camp where you were allowed to bring snacks. And she said that the thing at this camp is that you bring bags and bags of junk food and they would just sit in their cabins all day eating junk food. And she, one summer, comes back 30 pounds heavier. I will say gaining 30 pounds in two months is excessive and she caps it off with a photo of a low angle chin first photo that is just not flattering. So she gets out of the bus sees her parents and her mom goes
1: how did she get so fat? My dad snapped back. Why did you send her so much food? She says, so what if I gained a little weight? I had never been thin nor ever quite heavy. At least now I was swaying definitively towards one side. I pretended not to hear their juvenile conversation and continued to think about how I'd pass the next 300 days until it was time to go back to camp.
0: Her parents were obsessed with the fact that she gained weight. And she says, it never even occurred to me that I could or should do something about that number, except, you know, let it rise. This is a lie that we see perpetuated in every anorexia book, including Lena Dunham. This idea that these girls just don't care about their bodies at all until someone else projects the idea that they're too fat upon them. In Portia's book, it was the entertainment industry being like, my God, I can't believe you're a six. In Lena's book, it's a doctor. And in Leandra's book, it's her entire family telling her that she's too fat. And I do think that this is insane. I find it disingenuous to say that a 13, 14, 15 year old girl was not thinking about her body in any negative way. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying it's not a believable thing. I truly have a recollection of the first time I ever thought that I was too fat I think I was in like second grade yeah same And we were at the pool and I remember seeing one of my friends had really skinny legs and just thinking like, my God, I would die to have such skinny legs.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Just the idea that the only fat phobia in the world was from her two parents. It feels unbelievable. So she's going to this camp. She starts at 14. The summer she's 16. She's still at this camp as a camper, which we both found too old to be a regular camper at sleepaway camp. Yeah. To be 16 years old as a regular camper. I don't think that's a thing. At 16, you could be a mom. You can't be a camper. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so she is so sad the summer of 16 because she has to leave camp a few weeks early to go on this family vacation to Capri. Sucks.
0: Yeah she's like it's so annoying to have this difficult shitty life where I'm on a family vacation. Family and family friends. So there's people her age there too. It sounds like honestly an incredible time.
1: (laughs) Yeah it was like three or four families were all there and all the girls were about her age and all the boys were her older brother's age.
0: Yes and I would like to actually use this moment again to remind you from the Cutting Room Floor podcast where Leandra said that her entire childhood she was under the impression that they could be homeless at any moment. She was 16 years old going to overnight camp and then Capri. They
1: also had two homes One on the Upper East Side And one in the Hamptons Yes Okay So she gets there And when she gets to Italy She sees these two other girls Who are her age And she goes Now 16 Both of these girls Have become very skinny Bones protruding from neck Kneecaps about to pop Teeth jumping out of face skinny They had spent the summer Together in New York And in that time Seemingly ate only one shared apple they'd looked normal just six months earlier. The weight loss was actually alarming, blood curdling and uncomfortable to look at. I thought, hot, the men around me thought, which probably speaks to the caliber of the male fiber I was surrounding myself with. I apparently lived in a world where so thin people are worried skinny was a sexy thing. And I get this. So throughout the trip, she has this kind of horrible time because those two girls are getting along and she's feeling very left out. And all she has to wear are these like Bermuda shorts that her mom had bought her in multiple colors. And she was like, it was a very uncharacteristic, generous act of my mom to get me these shorts I liked and so many, colors. And now I realized it was the only thing in Bloomingdale's that fit me.
0: Another thing I'd like to call into question to find one pair of shorts in all of Bloomingdale's that fit a 16 year old. I understand that there's like a lack of plus size clothing in the market, especially then, but there's no way that she was unable to fit into clothes at Bloomingdale's. That is an insane thing to say.
1: I don't want to jump ahead, but she ultimately loses 30 pounds and loses her period. I just don't think if you're 30 pounds away from having a period, you were at a point where you couldn't find any clothes to fit.
0: If you're 30 pounds away from being so skinny that your body shuts down you're probably not that overweight you're probably a size six I'm sure that there were size eights at Bloomingdale's
1: so she says I wasn't ignorant though I understood the dynamic I was approachable unintimidating and heavy I'd become a parody of myself because I had made myself into just that I had the power to say no or fuck you to anything I wanted but because I couldn't rely on aesthetically pleasing people I cultivated what I called a really fun personality I made people laugh, and being called funny evoked the same warm feelings in me that I imagine most other girls felt when being called pretty. In private, however, I envied women who were not funny at all.
0: And the catalyst for her weight loss starts when they're in Capri, they're all getting ready to go out to like a kids club or some shit like that, and her brother doesn't want her to come because he's not proud to have her around. He says... When can I be proud to take you around Two, two referencing the friends who are proud of their emaciated sisters. Those are quotes.
1: Okay, I want to stop here and say, as a sibling, I can imagine being embarrassed of how a sibling looks. I am sure I've told Thomas, fuck you, you look stupid. I cannot ever imagine being like proud that he's so sexy.
0: I also can't imagine not wanting to take your sibling with you because they're not hot enough. I can imagine not wanting to take your sibling with you because you are annoyed by them. To like, I have the most annoying fucking brother in the world and I don't want to take him to the club with me. I want to just go with my friends. But I would never be like, I don't want my brother to come with because he's not sexy. (laughs) No one's going to want to fuck my brother and there's no reason to bring him out.
1: So obviously, in response to her brother saying this, which is like a deeply mean thing to say, she starts crying. Her mom sees her and goes, what's the problem? I told her what had happened. And instead of consoling me the way I wanted her to, she told me that if I was so hurt by what Haim had said, I should do something about it. I think it's Haim. Whatever. I don't think he deserves to have his name said right. Yeah, he is being pretty mean. Get to the gym, she yelled as she left the room, slamming the door behind her. No one fucking understands me, I yelled in an enraged cry, contemplating jumping out the window. And then she goes on this like weird rant about how she's so overdramatic that she's always threatening to kill herself to get attention. And I'm just like, I don't know. I think an entire family bullying you because of the way you look. This isn't an overreaction. This actually is something that would potentially drive somebody to self-harm.
0: Yeah. And it does, because anorexia is like a form of self-harm. It absolutely is, and it does drive her to anorexia. So she says for the next month, she would eat apples or celery when she wanted a snack, chunks of salmon when she dined out, and salad whenever she pleased, but never ever with extra dressing on the side. She goes, I missed bagels the most, but just as I had previously
1: learned to divert attention from my pesky mother suggesting I exercise and lose weight, so I did with my craving for bagels until it became obsolete.
0: And she also says that it turns out exercise was great for her brain.
1: Her thing is, her brother's in college right now. This is a summer vacation. She goes, when he comes back from Thanksgiving, I'm going to be so skinny. I'm going to freak him out. Yeah. And make him pay. She goes, when the six months had passed, I was 30 pounds lighter and my face was looking frail. I'll admit I wasn't all that healthy all the time. My period went on a six month sabbatical. And while I loved that I wouldn't have to deal with painful cramps, I later learned I was en route to infertility. So here's where it takes a turn. This is a heartbreaking, tragic story of a woman being bullied by her own family into eating disorder. Yes. Here is where, as a woman who purportedly is geared for women to be themselves, could have come in and been like, luckily I've gotten help, and now I see that I was so miserable, I was starving, I didn't look better, that was such a fucked up thing. Instead of being like, oh, it was fucked up of them, she instead talks about how happy she is now that she's skinny. And she goes, I thought back to the previous summer at Bloomingdale's with my mom when all the clothes I had liked didn't quite fit. Though the outfits I had been capable of putting together in my head seemed so perfect, so trendy, and so magically capable of telling a cohesive story, they never looked right on me. Now, finally, they looked physically good too. This moment, I think, is when I stopped rejecting fashion. After all, I had historically loved it and it is a deep shame to deprive yourself of true love. During the process of my weight loss, I learned that Carl Lagerfeld had gone through a similar hardship and though he is famous for saying that he just wanted to look better in clothes, I am almost sure that someone or something had been eating his soul too. The previous looming unhappiness that I had first consciously noticed while we were in Italy had dissipated almost entirely. I seemed to own a different brand of self-assurance that didn't mandate that I make silly faces and noises and act so crude. The previous brand hadn't been all that confident anyway. I think they call it and then she goes on to be like but my weight loss didn't stop the silliness as it turns out I didn't really want to be elegant like my mother so she keeps her personality and then she goes on this whole rant about how everybody should go through a fat phase so they can learn to be funny and then presumably get anorexia and start looking good in clothes
0: that is one of the most unhinged sentences I've ever heard and it also ends with this wrap up of like and then I got skinny which was a good thing because then I looked good in clothes much like Carl Lagerfeld and then my family got worried about me so I kind of won and then I was fine Well,
1: she goes, everybody deserves a chance to build personality without relying on conventional exterior beauty. So then her brother comes home at Thanksgiving and is horrified. They all go to this family dinner where she is not eating. And he goes, Mom, you've got to do something about this. About what? My mom asked. She remembered that Heim had driven me to this point and as such took my side. He goes, about her. She's anorexic. She needs help. I got up from my chair and stormed out. They were like, don't go. She goes, I was quite pleased that Haim now not only cared for the preservation of my well-being, but also thought I was too thin. I may not have been anorexic, but I was certainly a little sick. So it ends with him going back to college. And then a few months later, he introduced me to his new girlfriend. I've heard fantastic things about you. She said, Haim is a proud, proud brother. So that's how it ends. There's never a note that she gains weight back. There's never a note that she gets past her anorexia.
0: So this is actually what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the past tense of the wording. I may not have been anorexic, but I was a little sick. Was may not have been. So I have talked about this a little bit on the podcast. I had like a little bit of an eating disorder in college. Working at Man Repeller fucks me up. It was the most unhealthy eating environment I've literally ever been in my life. It was such a horrible, horrible culture. The lunch situation. I'm going to talk about it more in depth on the Patreon. But the idea that this is past tense. I mean, obviously you can look at her now and know that it's not past tense. But the way that it projected to the people around her. Eating disorders are contagious. I
1: mean, her mom clearly gave her that eating disorder. Her mom... Wanted her to get that eating disorder and was happy that the brother had the balls to say what I guess she had been thinking the whole time. Just So she's like, I gained weight and everybody was mad at me. I lost a ton of weight and it was so dangerous for my health that I almost lost the ability to have a child. And then everybody started to like me and I liked myself and I finally got to dress good and everything looked better on me. And then there's no, I got better. There's no, I put on weight. There's just, and then my brother was proud of me. This is a chapter about how the only thing standing between you and what you want is 30 pounds. It is so fucked up. I cannot believe she was allowed to put it into print. I think that this book is one of the most fucked up books I've ever read. At least Portia de had the decency to say, objectively, anorexia is bad and then go on kind of like a secret ode to it. But this is just... An ode to anorexia. What made me who
0: I am? Why am I good at fashion? Well, one time I was bullied into disappearing. I used to wear just Bermuda shorts and then I was bullied into sickness. And then I looked way better in different kinds of clothes. She literally said when I was heavier, I couldn't put together outfits. And now that I was skinny, I finally look good. And you know
1: who else did it? Carl Lagerfeld. Psychotic. So let's move on. The very next sentence of the next chapter. I was like, oh, maybe in the next chapter she talks about getting better. The next sentence is, at eight years old, I asked my mother why I could never wear belly tops, a brilliant outfitting concept I had called from the Spice Girls. She told me I was too young, but I never took that at face value and instead blamed it on my flabby stomach. I was an eight-year-old girl with propensity towards gushers after all. So this is interesting because she had just spent the last chapter saying that she never thought about her weight. She never thought it was a problem that she gained weight. And then here she is at eight years old thinking her mom won't let her wear clothes she likes because she's
0: too fat for them at eight. True. So let's title this chapter. It's called the maxi skirt in this book. I wanted to call this chapter the maxi skirt or... Everyone's a slut but me. I don't even know what the plot of this chapter is. She went to a yeshiva high school where you have to wear long skirts. Orthodox Jews cover their elbows and knees always. And so she went to a pretty religious prep school so she has to wear very specific clothing all the time and the most boring long black and navy skirts and it's just dull and she like has these fashion dreams but no choices she talks about how she had to learn her style through this oppression and learn who she was and discover her individuality without the freedom to dress and then later when she did have the freedom to dress she found out that she like kind of liked long skirts anyway so the difference is once she graduates high school she goes
1: to the new school which she makes sure to let you know that where she's from that is a piece of at school and if you go
0: there you're a stupid idiot but later in the book she let slip that she didn't even get into NYU everyone's like why would you go there and it's like well she had no options for me the part of this chapter that really stands out is this chunk It's a challenge to escape the perils of becoming a product of your environment. I say perils because people, things, and ideas you surround yourself with will inevitably shape whatever opinions you can conjure. And if what's around you is one big horde of vanilla kids wearing the same long skirts, elbow length shirts, sneakers, and backpack, listening to the same teachers wearing the same thing, it's difficult to decipher where creativity and individuality and that which makes someone authentically individual fit in. In an era where low cut jeans and visible G strings were cooler than the contents of an overactive refrigerator, I had to make do in my taxing environment. So here she's talking about how truly difficult it is to try to discover your own identity in a world where everyone is asked to be the same thing. As if that's not literally everyone on earth's struggle.
1: I also am confused by what's cooler than the contents of an
0: overactive refrigerator. What does that mean? I literally don't know. But to me, what's really important about okay, this Okay, I chunk...
1: know, but th- can we all agree that that is like... If anybody listening has any insight into what that clause
0: could possibly mean... Let us know. Please, I have been looking at it all day. I think what's really interesting is working for her, she was so deeply unopened to any ideas that weren't her own.
1: Part of the lesson of this chapter is this idea that I think can be summed up at the end when she's in the new school. And so she talks about how when she went to yeshiva, she felt this huge drive to rebel against them and dress kooky because she wasn't allowed to. And then the minute she was allowed to at the new school and everybody was dressing kooky, she kind of lost herself. And she has this quote that I actually really liked. She says, the pressure to define oneself is usually what stops us from actually doing it. And I do think that that's true. I get that instinct of being like, it was easier to find myself when it was controlled. And then when there was so much freedom, it was harder to find my way. And so at the end, she finds herself wearing this long maxi skirt And the joke is it's the very maxi skirt she hated that she had to wear in middle school. Tell me I'm one of your kids, Yeshiva Day School, and I will strongly disagree. But give me seven years of space and you will learn that I've finally admitted I always was, always am, and always
0: will be one of your kids. This was especially interesting to me because I was like, oh fuck, this really clarified that this is being written by someone who's seven fucking years out of high school.
1: (laughs) To me, I think the question is why were we so wrong about who we thought she was versus who she was saying she is? And I think the religious aspect, because she comes from a very conservative religious family yes so i think in photos you see a girl wearing a maxi skirt and a peasant top and layering it to the nines and adding a million accessories and you go this is a cool woman dressing for herself she doesn't care about looking sexy but the problem is when you write a book you start showing your work like she got the answer right but then you see how she got there and you're like wait wait what so this begins the trend of I don't necessarily want to call it like slut shaming but it's like slut fearing it turns out the reason her mom wouldn't let her wear midriffs which is absolutely reasonable is she goes I didn't want you to look promiscuous fair enough I'm on your team an eight-year-old doesn't need to wear a crop top I agree but then later in the book she wears a romper on a date and her mom goes you're gonna get raped on the subway because she's showing her legs another time she's wearing a dress and she goes I feel like I was sexual assault personified another time she wears over the knee boots and her dad goes you look like a woman of the night anything that is at all sexy they're like you will get raped you are a whore take it off. And so I think what was seen as this freedom to not care about the male gaze was actually a deeply religious response to covering up a woman because of like an old school.
0: So I'm not entirely sure about that. She's very much known for like pairing insane tops with super short cutoffs and stuff like that. And she's always showing her legs. This is something that I actually related to in her because I feel like my family is like that. We're not super conservative Jewish but my parents are definitely a lot more traditional and there have been like a lot of alluding to the fact that I'm a big dumb slut by my family <laughs> quite regularly. Not so much anymore, but I remember in high school, my friend who was like the most sexually active, they all of the parents called her Fast Victoria because she was like the sluttiest. I remember when I told my mom that I she was making fun of me at a dinner for having never kissed a boy in front of a lot of people. And we got out to the car and I was like, do you know, what? I actually have kissed a boy and this is really rude and you make me feel really bad when you do that. And she was like, what do you mean you've kissed a boy? You don't have a boyfriend. And I was like, you don't need a boyfriend to have kissed a boy. And she goes, oh, so you're a hoe. The mm-hmm. cat And that was when I was like 18. I like do deeply relate to this situation, but I feel like there's self-reflection and there's discovery and then there's becoming bigger than a product of your surroundings, which is what she's preaching in this whole fucking chapter where you like grow outside of that and you're like, oh, what they called me, that's not necessarily the truth. I'm not a hoe. And instead she returns to it, which is this weird response. But I think what people gravitated to and related to is her rejection of it. And they never realized that she like sunk back into it. I guess I really do think
1: that in her there's a deep fear of being seen as slutty it's not empowered
0: it's frightful there's a fear of being seen as single and slutty because now that she's married the fact that she walks out of this book with a husband she actually really hypes up her pseudo promiscuity during her one single year mm-hmm. she like really wants to hammer in the fact that she's not this woman who just only had sex with one man her whole life she really like needs you to know that she fucks mm-hmm. and it's like I think two other people perhaps And not that there's anything wrong like your number doesn't define you whatever but like I think that it's just this weird thing where she like needs to fall into the most socially acceptable place in her mind, which is to appease her blog readers. She's not just some woman who's never had sex with anyone ever and like doesn't know what sex and pleasure is. But to appease her orthodox upbringing, she needs to like still be married at 23.
1: In this we find out that when she moved downtown to go to the new school she lived in a dorm for one month before she moved back uptown because she said she missed her parents and she missed having family nearby.
0: I do think people underestimate how far downtown and uptown are on the Isle of Manhattan. It could take upwards of 20 minutes to see your family. That's not nearby. (laughs) Not even close. I do want to say I think a lot of her outfits aged really well so I'll give her credit for that. Yeah because it turns out they're not actually that interesting. (laughs) Next chapter, to quote Taylor Swift.
1: She calls it, the devil does not wear Valentino. I call it, my life is uninteresting, but I have no outside
0: reference points, so I'm going to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. I'm going to call it, I'll take privilege for $300, Alex. Alex. I do think that this chapter really encapsulates her bullshit.
1: As a senior in high school gets an internship at Valentino and it's about the first day working where she cannot believe that she has to get an elevator
0: pass. She goes for an interview. She goes straight to the elevator and they're like, you can't get in the elevator until you check in and get an elevator pass. Then on her first day of work, when she gets the internship, she goes straight for the elevator and they're like, you need an elevator pass. And she's like, but I work here now. And they're like, no, no, you got to go check in and get an elevator pass. They give her a one month elevator pass because now she works there but she has to run an errand, forgets the elevator pass and then cannot fucking believe that they won't just let her up without going to check in and get an elevator pass again. I would like to remind you, aside from how stupid this is in general, we are talking about a post 9-11 New York City. You had to get an elevator pass for fucking everything. I've never once in my life gotten an elevator without a pass.
1: And then it just ends with her first day. There was a lot of things she had to do and I literally don't know what the point was. There was no like, oh it was great or it actually sucked or it sucked but that's what made it great she didn't learn a lot she didn't learn anything literally it ends at six forty-five on her first day of the internship so i don't really know what the point was
0: yeah but we get to know what kind of shoes she wore and that she hoped that they would give her free shoes later so that was a good chapter next chapter the white socks what's your title
1: dumb bitch alert the war of attrition dating <laughs> So this is the story about how A.B. broke up with her and then she did everything she could to get him back. And I think it's interesting because she spends a lot more time talking about the fact that he broke up with her and how heartbroken she was. And this is much more important than the relationship they had when they got back together. And then, of course, we don't know about the relationship when they got married because this was written on their honeymoon.
0: I've always found it deeply interesting that she ever gave relationship advice because her relationship experience is so, so narrow and so non-traditional and honestly bad.
1: bad. I have to say (laughs) the way she treated this one relationship, I would never give my daughter this book. I would love for my daughter to read Gabrielle Union's book. I would love for my daughter to read Busy Phillips.
0: I would love for my daughter to read uh, Drew Barrymore. So this chapter begins with her losing her virginity to AB and explaining to him that they should have sex and she promises she won't get attached to him again. So you know at this point they have already broken up they are broken up when they have sex so it opens with her begging him basically to take her virginity and she's like and so ended the first ever conversation in the history of communication in which a girl would force a boy to take her virginity that's a thousand percent not true i know that that line isn't important but it really does speak to the whole where she just thinks that she's had the most interesting experience known to man and her experience is so so deeply normal Like this chapter isn't normal, but that conversation is not crazy.
1: Yeah. A lot of men don't want to be the one to take your virginity if you're not in a relationship and you have a history of being being obsessed obsessed with with them. (laughs) So she flashes back into time of when her and A.B. had met. She's 17 years old. They're going to a Halloween party. She's a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. How old is A.B.? He's three years older than her, I think. Yes. She's 17. I think he's 20. Mm -hmm. She goes, after getting the costume together and finally putting it on, my friends looked at me flabbergasted. The glare in their eyes told of their utter disgust in my decision to conceal so many body parts.
0: Once again, she is just not sexy enough for the world. Specifically her friends. So
1: they give her an old flight attendant costume, which I thought was going to be like hoary as hell. It's just a dress. It's tight. The looking so exposed made me feel like a potential victim of sexual harassment. When we got to the party, it was a mere four minutes before a man began talking to me. It was unprecedented. I had to wonder if I'd have garnered this attention as quickly in the pirate costume. I like your costume, he said. Obviously not. So this is AB, who is later like hailed as the greatest boyfriend of all time because he loves all of her outfits. And so again, it's funny because it's like, well, you were getting kissed in the other dresses. Boys like you in this. I do think you were just like a cute girl. And you know, when a cute girl goes to a party and is single, a boy will probably talk to you.
0: Also, we find out that he had friended her on Facebook a couple weeks before this party because they had a friend in common. Then he like went up to her and they started talking. He's like, I'm the one who friended you on Facebook. And then she's coy about it. She's like, if you want my number, you can message me on Facebook. And then he does. So she goes to a date with him. This is important, what she wears on the first date. This is the only time her outfit description has ever been important.
1: I strategically wore a pair of light blue skinny jeans with a white t-shirt, black cardigan, and a conservative Chanel two-tone flats. I wanted to be a blank canvas. I didn't know what kind of man he was, and so I dressed as though I didn't know what kind of woman I was either. I mean, you didn't. Most 17-year-olds don't.
0: But they got along great. I do think the fact that she went in as a blank canvas for him is so embarrassing.
1: It's so embarrassing. And it's also funny because this whole book is supposed to support this thesis of what Man Repeller is, which is that women who dress for themselves, they don't care if men like it or not. They're dressing to repel men because they don't give a fuck. And yet there's actually no connection between what she's wearing and how a man responds.
0: I would argue that the actual thesis of this book is men literally do not care about your outfit.
1: They literally don't. (laughs) So when he broke up with her a year and a half later, he had just graduated college and she had just started college. So I think it's like three years, four grades between them. Yes. So she is fucking destroyed by this. She's so destroyed that she actually never gets over it until she marries him four or five years later. She goes, at one point I fell to the floor and started crying during a shower until Jamie came in and cradled my body until it stopped shaking. I didn't know that women were like collapsing constantly over the weight of a broken heart. I think women who have no other things will, yes. I mean, I've been heartbroken and I've cried a ton about
0: boys, but I think I've always gotten myself to the safety of a chair. (laughs) So they dated for about a year. It doesn't even seem like that exciting of a year. We don't hear anything about that year other than they connected pretty quickly and liked each other a lot. That's what's so weird is that you have no sense of what this relationship
1: is that she was so heartbroken over other than the fact that it was something that she got rejected from or why
0: they got married outside of the fact that he said let's get married. She says she felt very at home with him and from the first time they met thought that they had something really special.
1: She also says that he is a finance guy and she's a fashion girl and that's kind of a trope that the finance guy fashion girl get together and she goes maybe it's a trope though because it's true he appreciates her and she appreciates that he appreciates her and I was like is that a quality you can love in someone that you love that they appreciate you? Yeah I think that that's her whole thing is that she loves when people love her. So they break up she's heartbroken for two full years. Basically she's on this trip to Tel Aviv with her family. There she like makes out drunkenly with her older brother's friend who's also on the
0: trip. She wakes up and he's wearing a shirt, no pants. She cannot get over the fact that he looks like Donald Duck. She's like, can you imagine? There are people out there who are shirt, no pants, bopping around. <laughs> wangs waggling about (laughs) so she's like did we have sex and he's like no
1: because of this she's like okay once she's like okay if i'm gonna be making out with people i need to get my virginity out of the way who do i want to lose my virginity to nobody but ab and she's like now that i'm over ab because i made out with someone else i better go have sex with him because that's how you really celebrate being over somebody and she does recognize that this was ridiculous and she's like i kept telling myself i didn't want anything from him and i wasn't trying to get him back through sex but that's crazy Of course she was trying to get him back through sex. So she goes over to have sex with him. He finally agrees to do it. And she walks to his apartment and she greets the doorman who still knew her. And he goes, how's it going, Miss Leandra? He asked me, I always wondered if his enunciation of the word miss was meant to remind me that I would never be a missus
0: and how stupid I looked in his eyes. It absolutely had nothing to do with you. He's a polite doorman. She
1: has this little Melissa Joan Hart quality about her where she really wants to be seen as this little sex pot. And the things she says are exactly, what you said they're very 12-year-old girl who's never been kissed yet, but she's trying to impress some older cousins. She talks about wearing his favorite purple bra. And she goes, I wore it in his honor. The bra was one that I knew he was mad about. I'd worn it once while we were together, and let's just say that I'd never seen a blast-off that efficient, even from NASA. Blast-off! <laughs> Is she saying he jizzed his pants quickly at the sight of a purple satin bra? I hate to say, but he might be a little bit Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> is she saying he got a boner lickety split or is she saying he cummed himself? Because <laughs> at this point she's a virgin. I think she's doing hand stuff. He kept his eyes right on that bra and he came quicker than he's ever come from a hand jump. I'm Claire, literally- you're starting to sound like you've never had sex. <laughs>
0: I've had sex, I've just never worn a bra, so I don't understand. Who's the virgin now? You don't know that men see a silky purple bra and they just rock it in their pants. (laughs) So she goes over to his house. They boink. She realizes her socks were on the entire time, hence the chapter title, White Socks. Okay, so he puts on a sex
1: playlist. If you guys have graph paper in front of you, feel free to timeline this away. So before they start having sex, he puts on a song by Death Cab for Cutie called Possess Your Heart. They have sex. She goes, oh, wow. Sex is not overrated. I shouted out loud, beach somewhat impaired while sitting on top of him, feeling for the first time the sensation of a penis poking at my cervix.
0: Ew. And then
1: he laughed proudly. We both reached our respective climaxes and were about to share what no one could take from us. I forgot to take off my socks. I yelled on the cusp of orgasm. Fuck it. He said, just fuck it. Was he talking to me or his penis? And then it was over. Possess your heart still played in the background. Okay, can I just say, I may not be a sex expert. And maybe they do have something that I've never in my life experienced. But I do not think
0: that you can go from unbuttoning your clothes to orgasm your first time in under one song. Yes, that is what I would like to posit. Well, we also know that he tends to rock it in his (laughs) face. At the sight of a purple bra. I can't believe she just outed him as like a quick comer. A.B., it was her first
1: time. Have some goddamn respect. Hold it back. Think of your grandma.
0: Ew. So unfortunately, this act did not have the effect of just simply being over him and no longer a virgin. She ends this being like, we would have to get back together eventually. I knew that nothing was the same. He had all of me now. I felt like a small ball of fecal matter. I do think that once again, we're getting into the traditional values here. They had sex and now he has all of her. And she's a piece of shit.
1: (laughs) Anyway, he leaves for work the next morning. She wakes up and he's gone. He doesn't text her. And then she goes to brunch with her friends. Is like, what the fuck do I do? And then she's like, he used me. And then they're like, no, you used him. And then she goes, I was using him. This was about me and about my moving on. It had a little to do with how AB felt or what he thought. Having sex with an ex-boyfriend is tricky. There are feelings on the line, most of which are your own, but it's also like a drug, much easier to give it into than to resist. And then she goes, I was just using sex to recover control. Chapter ends. She goes, I wanted to test myself and hear the song that told the tale of the end of my virginity without cringing. I didn't want to think about the consequences of my actions or the circumstances of my love life or about those wretched white socks. I wanted to think about me and the selfishness of being 19. I wanted to feel eager. I did feel eager. I couldn't wait to do it again. First of all, this is horrible advice and she should not pitch it as good advice. The only reason this is a good chapter in her mind is because she then just kept waiting and waiting until he married her. And then she's like, fuck, I got married way too early. So
0: here's the thing about this book is I actually don't think it's advice at all. I think it truly is her being like, I'm interesting and I'm weird and you have no idea how these thoughts swirl around in my frizzy little head. It's the same as Lena Dunham's book. It's not supposed to help anybody. These books are both truly just jerk offs. She is literally fucking getting herself off while looking in the mirror and like, like, telling her own story over and over again. She's She's blasting off, like, NASA. Blasting off, like, NASA to the sight of her own purple bra. There's nothing about this that's for anyone else. So what advice is this supposed to be? It's not. She literally has no concept in her mind that people out there aren't, like, the exact same as her. So she's like, here's what I did. I'm not giving advice. I'm saying, like, be me or be nobody.
1: I guess when I say I never want my daughter to read this book, it's the anorexia, and then it's also the idea that you should meet a guy at 17, date him, And then have him dump you
0: and then spend three years of your life. Being so pathetic, he has no choice but to just marry you and live in that prison forever. And then in the broken up
1: times, lose your virginity to him. Try and convince yourself that that was a good move. And then just wear him down until he marries you at 22. I can't think of a worse fate for my daughter. This is the worst example I've ever seen set of how to deal with a high school breakup. So now that she's a sexually empowered woman by... Tying herself to a man she met in high school for the rest of her life. Let's move on to the next chapter. The ostrich skin clutch or lies that nobody gives a fuck about. I would call it how to make your incredibly generous family
0: look like fucking assholes.
1: So basically this chapter is about how her whole life she's been given designer stuff from her grandma. Her grandma loves to give gifts. Leandra loves fashion. So she gives her Chanel. She gives her Fendi. She gives her all these designer items. Whenever she tells her grandma a compliment, her grandma will take that item off her back and give it to her. And Leandra goes, so I've had to learn to stop saying things I like even if I don't like them. Because then she'll just give it to me and then I'll have this fucking Hermes belt that I don't even want. So she's in her Florida home, her Palm Beach home one day for Thanksgiving and she's rummaging through her closet and she finds an ostrich Hermes clutch. She calls her grandma and goes, why didn't you ever tell me about this? And her grandma goes, I forgot I had it. Leandra goes, okay, well, can I have it? And her grandma goes, absolutely not. That was the first expensive piece of anything your grandfather bought for me when he first made money. All I heard was blah, 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 sentimentality, blah. Two months later, she's going to Paris for six months for her semester abroad. Her grandma gives her the clutch and says, wear it in good health and be careful with it. Leandra takes it. She brings it to Paris. She wears it everywhere. One night, she gets really drunk and goes to this French party that sucks. She gets so drunk at the party that she ends up needing to puke in the cab home. She says that she couldn't have gotten out of the cab because if she had gotten out of the cab, she would have died. The only option was to vomit into the clutch. So she vomits into this clutch that she tells her grandma she would have died without, that her grandma says, please be careful with, I love it so much. Goes home, washes it out. The clutch ends up being okay. Two years later, she tells her grandma the story. The grandma laughs out loud and goes, oh, I lied to you. I had found that for like 30 euros at some Italian market. And she goes, I don't even know if it's real Hermes, but I can't wait to give it to my daughter. Should we move
0: on to the next chap? The lesson of the harem pants, or as I would like to call it, a lot of words that mean no things. So in this chapter, she buys a pair of shiny harem pants from Zara because she sees a model looking fucking smoking in them in the dressing room. And so she's like, I'll buy them. And she also says they're pretty comfortable. They hide a bloated day. When she wore them, she said they were an important
1: exercise in social experimentation and a really good mask for the beer and ice cream I had heavily indulged in the night before. Turns out Corona light isn't all that light.
0: And the couple of times that she wears them, one time she had this dalliance with a person at her internship, a 30 year old when she was like 19. They went out one time and he never called her again. And then one day she wore the harem pants and he was like, let's get drinks tonight.
1: And that same morning, she had run into A.B., who they had been broken up with for, like,
0: one year, five months, three weeks, she says. But they saw each other on the train. He sees her in the pants, and he texts her drinks tonight. So now she has two dates that night. She talks about the harem pants, and she makes a ton of points about how harem pants are the least sexy pants of all time. She says this one part. Had he really liked my gauzy harem pants? Harem pants. They were a surefire contraceptive. Anyone can tell you that. They were historically known to deflect male genitals, except in the case of their namesake, M.C., and A.B., A banker and a man who is ostensibly supposed to understand or care for nothing other than a bodycon dress liked the pants. She's invited
1: to drinks with A.B. and the boss on the same night by both men after they see her in the harem pants. And then she from this deduces that even though the harem pants are ugly pants that are contraceptives, as she calls them, she goes 98% of the time men hate them but 2% of the time they'll like them and I happen to find the 2% and I'm like it sounds like men like them it sounds like 100% of the men you were at all interested in romantically that day responded to the pants so just say that 98% of them don't like them is a made up statistic
0: yes and she's also really inferring what the liking of the pants means from these two different perspectives so she assumes that because AB a finance guy who must only like body dresses, the fact that he sees these crazy pants and likes her in them means he's actually deeply deeply in love with her she
1: says there's two reasons that men would like the pants and that the boss fits under one reason. And it's that he's the fashion man. In the most stereotypical case, this guy is wildly selfish. He likes her hair and pants, not because he thinks she's a tremendous individual with the ability to make a drop crotch look more graceful than a swan suit, but instead for the sake of his own appeasement. So basically she's saying he understands that what she's doing is cool. He likes being seen with someone cool. Whereas AB likes her for the right reason She goes, on the opposite side of the spectrum, the other type. When I asked AB why he wanted to see me that night, we reopened the tale of our read my love story. He noted the harem pants. He said she looked happy and free and independent, which means that he liked her.
0: So this is like a deeply unthoughtful example of the trickery of Man Repeller. She created all of these projections of what fashion can mean and how individual expression is important and like projected nonsense upon it. It's like the tarot readers on TikTok who are constantly pulling cards and being like, if this resonates with you, take it in. If this doesn't resonate with you, it wasn't meant for you. And she does this thing where she's like, OK, so this is the exact reading that I want to hear. I want to hear A B likes these pants because he's obsessed with me. I want to hear that this fashion guy, who is kind of an asshole, truly. His big mistake was he said, oh, those pants looked really sexy. And she goes, he loves me for all the wrong reasons. She's like, no one could ever think these pants are sexy. And it's like, no, clearly no one cares what you're wearing. Both guys just think you're hot and you happen to be wearing very eye-catching pants today. She ends this
1: chapter by going, as it turns out, dating is actually a complex process of elimination. One that allows a woman to weed out the bad and only permit the good to blossom. What does that mean?
0: Nothing. So this chapter is called The Canadian Tuxedo, or as I call it, How I Stole My Friend Rachel's Really Good Idea. So this chapter is about how she wore Canadian tuxedo. Crazy. In her ode
1: to Canadian tuxedos, she goes, denim, a fabric that caters to every woman's mood, even that of a pregnant one in her third trimester, the stretch of denim covering her belly and hugging her ass in a way that makes it look just as it did almost nine months prior. Who is she talking about? Okay, I've never been pregnant and I don't know a ton of pregnant people, but I would use my common sense to guess that the typical experience is that the pants that fit you when you're not pregnant don't fit you at the end of your pregnancy. Is that true? Why is she saying that?
0: I literally don't know. Why did
1: she bring up a pregnant woman here? She said they're waiting in line to the movie theater because it's the only place in New York City with air conditioning. And she's wearing
0: jeans. Anyway, her friend Rachel is a fashion writer. She goes with Rachel on a little hangout at Isabel Marant. She like falls in love with all the clothes and then they go to Top Shop where they can afford shit. She's trying on clothes at Top Shop, and she's trying on just like the craziest shorts anyone's ever fucking seen. And Rachel is losing her mind being like, this is why you have no love in your life. It's because you dress like a man repeller.
1: And this was a term that they had come up with and joked amongst themselves to describe like Chloe Sevigny and Daphne Guinness. She's like, you're out here repelling men with your crazy shorts. She goes, we had dabbled in the of a man repelling that women so invested in their sartorial conquests are bound for a life of little companionship but many shoes several times prior to the revelation on that sunny
0: june afternoon but it had never hit so close to home here's another one and you wonder why none of them will commit rachel said upon seeing how saggy my 21 year old ass looked in the drop crotch somewhat like the face of mufasa from a disney movie the lion king no really this is why you're single she added and then she goes through
1: and i guess she had this high-waisted pair of denim cutoffs that she had worn on all three dates of ab the boss and then there's like this third banker and all three of them had been like, those shorts are kind of ugly.
0: Or she had been wearing the shorts when they told them that they weren't trying to commit to her. So she was like, it was the shorts fault. She's like thinking back on it and she's like, this British guy, he had just moved to the United States. And so he like wasn't looking for anything serious. But now that I think back on it, how hard could it be to want something serious? It's the shorts. <laughs> so they go home to start this blog idea. And on the way, she's
1: on the subway and she wants to prove a point. There are two men. They're wearing like sports stuff. They're like regular Joe type guys. She goes, am I repelling you? And they go, what do you mean? She goes, my outfit. Is it so ugly to you? And they go, no, you're cute. And then she goes, damn. And sits back down. She goes, okay, it's not working so far. And then as one of them is leaving, he goes, it is weird that you're wearing two watches on one arm though. And she's like, aha, it is my outfit. People hate me because of my outfits and I'm like that's not an outfit choice that's like a douchebag thing but then she goes home they create man repeller they come up with all these definitions and then after Rachel had gone home I drafted an alternate meaning to man repelling we're not single because we can't get dates no we're single because fashion is a call to individuality should that be rendered indecipherable by the standards of a paltry man? Let it be known. You're not into leopard print. I'm not into you. So I do think that this is the key to why people have been so disappointed by Lee Andrew Medine in the fall of Man Repeller. Because they thought it was this empowerment first blog. It was looking for answers to make the rejection less personal. Yeah. She wasn't like, I wear whatever I want
0: because I don't care. She was like, nobody will marry me. Is it because my outfit's ugly? (laughs) And she like just cannot get over the fact that she is so single. She's like, I was 19 years old. Not a date in sight. What the fuck? I don't know, man. You're still obsessed with your
1: ex-boyfriend. The next chapter is called Shoe York City or Shut Up, You Dumb Bitch. Take the compliment. This chapter is about how her whole life people have been like, oh, you're just like Harry Bradshaw. She's a, a New York City girl who loves shoes. And the more her life became writing freelance articles to pay for fancier shoes, the more people were like, oh, you're just like Carrie Bradshaw. And it used to make her so mad. And then one day she finally bought herself a pair of Manolo Blahniks and she never wanted them because she hated what Carrie Bradshaw had done to the name of Manolo Blahniks. And then she finally bought them. She stepped in dog shit the very first day. And then she went to the liquor store and demanded liquor, even though she didn't have her ID. And she was like, please just give it to me. I just ruined my brand new Manolo Blahniks and they're white. I I couldn't bring my ID because my wallet doesn't go with this outfit. And the liquor store lady goes, wow.
0: You're just like Carrie Bradshaw. And she finally goes, fine, I guess I am. That is truly the most Carrie Bradshaw thing that's ever happened to like walk into a liquor store and demand special treatment.
1: Also to like not know that you're the most annoying person on earth is very Carrie Bradshaw.
0: Yes. She has aged the way Carrie Bradshaw has aged. At first we're like, she's the main character. She's who I want to be. And then we're all like, wow, you were the worst one the whole time. She's like, what's wrong with you? I think that this chapter really annoyed me. This was another privileged chapter for me. And I know that I'm harping on this a lot, but it's only because it really bothers me that in that interview, she said she didn't
1: know. In case you guys don't know, one of the big things about the Cutting Room Floor interview is that she had never considered herself privileged growing up. And that's why she didn't think she needed to think about privilege or diversity because she herself was the
0: oppressed person at her company. So this is a story about her being, I guess, 21 years old, buying herself a pair of Manolo Blahniks with her freelance money because she had no other bills. She had no student loans. She lived with her parents. Then she steps in shit. She begs the liquor store lady to not ID her to buy this alcohol because she needs it to go home and drown her sorrows because she ruined her expensive shoes. And she says it actually is nice that the popularity of sex in the city means that now everyone knows what Manolo Blahniks are. And this person like understood my plight. And it really bothered me that she's like, there's literally no other way besides having watched Sex in the City that this liquor store worker would have ever heard of my fancy shoes. That's a really fucked up thing to say. The direct quote is,
1: girl, you is like the real Carrie Bradshaw. You know what? I said, taking back my credit card and the bottle of wine. Yeah, I guess I fucking am. So we can move on. This chapter is the peplum or... The day I realized I had made a huge mistake. (laughs) So she's having this
0: boring day. She also, can I say, never talks about the success of Man Repeller. She just all of a sudden is like, one day I started this blog. One day I have a pretty chill freelance life where I'm getting invited to Fashion Week stuff. The blog just becomes successful overnight. And I do want to point out that the true history of Man Repeller is that she had had other internships. She knew a lot of people in the fashion industry when she was in college before she started the blog. She knew people who worked at Refinery29. And on the third day after Man Repeller's launch, Refinery29 was running an article called, like, Best New Up-and-Coming Fashion fashion people. She was featured on that list. They're like, she's got this blog called Manor Peller. Manor Peller was three days old and it like skyrocketed it to success because she got like major press on day three. So this is the day where she's just kind of bopping around doing nothing, still living with her parents. Her mom is acting fucking weird. Her friends are acting weird. She has plans that night and her friend wants to meet at 5 p.m. I mean, not only does she not go into the success of Manor
1: Repeller, she doesn't even go into the work of it. It's Tuesday at 11 a.m. and her mom is like, are you going to leave the house today? And she goes, probably not. There's an SVU marathon on. I think I'll do this all day. Anyway, so she's watching SVU all day. Her mom
0: is really weird. She's like, you're busy tonight. You're not going to leave the house? And she's like, no. And then all of a sudden she goes, around 3 p.m. it dawned on me that the anxiety, the hoopla, and the radio silence were signs that pointed towards only one thing, a proposal. Up until this point, she has not even mentioned that she and A.B. got back together. She mentioned texting him and says that they'd been on again, off again for three years, even though it seems like they'd been off for three years and just kind of fucking. But she says... It meant only one thing, a proposal. Then we flash back and get the rekindling of their relationship. What happened is that So the London guy, the London banker, lived in the same building as A B.
1: Yes. Do you think that's why she dated him? Yes. So she's like, I ran into him in the building and I didn't speak to him because basically I finally got a therapist to help me get over A B. And she was like, You have to write a letter telling him that you're never gonna speak to him again. So I'd written this letter. I was gonna send it to him the next day. I didn't want to be nice to him in the building and then randomly say we can never speak again. So I just was mean to him. He sent me a ton of emails being like, Leandro you're so important to me. Why aren't you speaking to me? Why did you act like that? That was so painful. So she calls him to be like, if we can't be together, then I can't talk to you. And so then he calls her back and he goes, okay, well let's be together. And she's like, huh? And then they go to brunch and he's basically like, I want to be with you. And I think we could probably get married, but I don't want to give up my time yet.
0: It needs to go slow. Let's see how it goes. So they start dating slowly. A year later, they get engaged. They get engaged. It's a pretty uneventful proposal, to be honest. And she's like, he didn't do anything like giant sweeping and romantic, which I liked. I liked that he didn't do that. She takes a cab
1: downtown. She walks upstairs to her friend's apartment. He opens the door, proposes. They were all hiding. He gets on one knee and she goes, what are you doing? Get up. And he gets up and she goes, he never actually asked me. And I never actually said yes. The ring didn't look anything like the rings I had asked for, but it was so pretty. And I put it on. And then we went up to bar and books. The two families got together and we had drinks and it was perfect because it wasn't romantic. She's like, I hate roses. I hate Central Park. Here's the thing she says that I actually really like. It wasn't a timeless proposal. This is a phrase I've heard thrown around by the bridal market editors and other such wedding enthusiasts. AB knows about my relationship with timelessness that I've always rejected it and fashion. The idea of purchasing something I can wear forever feels odd. Not because I don't think I should want to wear something forever, but because the character quirk, charm and reminiscence of owning a print that is so indicative of one season, one moment in your life is just like owning a tangible memory why pass that up in this moment I go this is why she was so successful yeah there was something very freeing about we live in fear I think of regret yeah and in that passage there's this real fighting against it I really like that idea of being like live for the moment and stop living in fear of a potential feeling in 60 years let that stand as a memory of who you are I like that sentence and it did give me an insight why she said things that people liked Yeah,
0: she does say things that ring true, especially in short form. She can write a really good 500 words, I think. I don't want this to be like a hate brigade. I liked that moment. I know. I did like that moment. And I'm sorry that this was a hypergrade. I just was pretty traumatized after working there. So it's hard. (laughs) She says, Still, I felt anxious. I couldn't stop thinking about my 20s and what they're supposed to be. Aren't they supposed to be about making mistakes that you can laugh at in your 30s? Somehow there's little humor in hooking up with a random dude whose hair is longer than yours. Who calls himself Gus, whom you meet at a bar while you were wasted with your girlfriends when you have a husband? No, at that point, it's just plain old adultery. But I was in love, and if I said I needed time, time to fuck around, this wedding would never happen. That I find really interesting because their whole relationship was him needing time to fuck around, and then as soon as he's ready, she just has to be ready too. Because
1: she... Does not really want to get married at this point.
0: No, she doesn't seem ready at all. So she comes home from
1: this party of getting engaged and she's like not happy and she can't sleep. She goes, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. The question I was trying so hard to avoid asking myself kept creeping up. Uh, How would I, if I even would, tell my blog readers that I was engaged? Would they hate me? Would they call me a liar and suggest I'd lost my authority if I didn't tell them? Would they do
0: that still if I did? Would they even care? Was it important at all? So they did hate her. There was serious backlash. She just did a tweet that said like, funny story, I got engaged. And people freaked out. And then she posted a blog post about it and then ended up deleting that blog post because she changed her mind about posting it. She says in this that the assumption was it got so much negative backlash she had to take it down immediately. I actually do think that that's probably true. I don't think that she just like accidentally pressed upload and then was like, I didn't mean to. She She goes, I just wanted to write it out for me so I could think my own thoughts and get some
1: clarity on my perspective. I accidentally hit publish instead of preview. I didn't ever mean to publish it. And then immediately I deleted it, but it had already been picked up by other blogs. I think if she had been able to rectify it that quickly how many blogs could have picked it up
0: she said in reality there were no comments on it people were saying there was hate comments it was just up for seconds anyway I do think that it is interesting that because he was ready they had to get married and that she like really did have a lot of reservations about getting married that young and just didn't do anything about it I think she actually has written some pretty interesting things she has this article that was one of the biggest performers on Man Repeller ever called Regrets from When I Was Single or something like that. And it's about being so obsessed with getting AB back that she didn't enjoy being single ever and now she'll never be single again. And I do think that that's like a really interesting perspective. I think that the fact that she can acknowledge that is interesting and good. So I actually liked these
1: back two chapters because they were so honest to me. And she talks a lot about the fear she had about it was no longer my story. It was now our story and my story just started. She goes, I can't believe that I'd only been single for one year That now my life was going to revolve around another person. It actually gets to a lot of what we were talking about in the Patreon. Mm -hmm. She's living like our nightmare. Here, I'll just read one last little sentence from here before we moved on. She goes, in the four years between my ages 17 and 21, I was flamingly single. And for two of those years, I was still agonizing about the heartbreak induced by my 17-year-old self's relationship with AB. So in the course of my life, I will have had only one good year of singleness to reflect on to only one good year of true independent happiness. Was that really the right way to live and let live? Huh? Was it? In the short six weeks leading up to my wedding, my mind was inundated with chilling thoughts about the finality of marriage, who I
0: am, who I was, and who I'd never be again. So I think she just, like, doesn't know what love is. She connected with A.B. Young and thought that that was the best it was ever going to be. And I do think that they're a good match for each other. Knowing them, I think that they are a really good couple, They have like what the other person needs.
1: Great. I mean, obviously they're still married. So, so far so good. I actually appreciated her vulnerability about it. I find it honest because she feels exactly the way I would feel if I was in her position. It's just crazy that she's in that position at all. And I find that unrelatable.
0: That's what I'll say is I think that I really related to her like fears. And I was like, that's how I would feel too if I was in that position. But I wouldn't have probably gone through with it, I don't think. I I don't feel like we get love in this book. I feel like we get heartbreak and then we get trepidation. I liked these chapters. I thought that she was telling the truth. But I also just don't agree with the outcome. I'm like, how did we get there then? If this is truly the truth. Mm -hmm. So then we have a chapter called The Period Panties where she just like talks about having an absolute gusher of a period.
1: (laughs) So here we are. We finally got to the conclusion. The big white dress and an
0: organza jacket. This is the wedding. The culmination of her life's work. Getting married. I actually liked what she wore. I thought she looked cute. I think she looked beautiful at her wedding. She looked
1: really pretty. I liked the motorcycle jacket to cover the shoulders. I felt like it was like cool and fun and really her. Mm-hmm. I will say she talks a lot about how she was so scared to get married because... She had been writing her story and this was the end of her story. What are you thinking about? My mom asked me. I smiled at her, but I couldn't answer. What I was thinking was between me and myself about my story, our story, and how it was written. Maybe getting married meant that my book was closing, but that didn't detract from the fact that I had written it.
0: You're 23! What do you mean your story's over? (laughs) You guys, what I'm about to tell you is one of the grossest things we've ever read in a memoir. So She's talking about underwear, how on her wedding day she kind of opted for... Granny panties once again. And like a beat up sports bra. Yeah, I didn't own any lingerie. I understood why most women say they love it for the purpose of feeling not looking sexy, blah, blah, blah. But I had managed to discover my internal sexiness without having to use silk, satin bodices or thongs lined with fur. I thought that was like pretty judgmental to be like oh you need to wear something fancy to feel sexy I actually just like know that I'm sexy so
1: you're a loser it's also funny because she's like most women try to look sexy for a man but not me I'm like your whole life was about getting a man and now you're 23 and you don't know what to do with the rest of it because you accidentally won too quick
0: she's wearing these granny panties and it turns out the way her dress is cut it bunches them up and she gets these absolutely atomic wedgies and she's like I cannot walk down the aisle underwear all the way up my fucking asshole and her and her mom are trying to figure out what to do they have seconds to spare she's about to walk down the aisle and she says I? i just wear yours she looked at me uncomfortably and said but what will i wear i suggested she wear mine since her dress didn't seem to offer the hardships that mine did so we switched see that's a good mother
1: why didn't she just go commando the dresses to the ground they're in new york city they're at the saint regis run to
0: a victoria's secret there's one down the street why can't you just send someone to a victoria's secret this was insane so
1: get into what her mom is wearing because it's not just any old underwear
0: it wasn't until this moment that i learned how raunchy she was She had been wearing a burgundy silk G-string adorned by black lace. The whole fiasco made me very uncomfortable. Physically, since I'm not an advocate of ass floss, especially when I'm sharing it with someone else, but I figured if I had to have the insides of someone else's ass in mine, who better than my own mother's? Also internally, because my mother was obviously not a good man repeller. If I was her offspring and all I wanted from life was a good pair of cotton knickers, how could she have been so different? And what did she plan to do with her racy silk lace later that night? I couldn't possibly believe that she was wearing such a garment for her own vagina's comfort. Before I could let the train of thought, take me to my parents' bedroom where they were likely doing it doggy style. The time for the ceremony had arrived. Can you imagine these absolute fucking freaks doing it doggy style? What a ranch fest! I
1: don't like that her and her mom switched underwear. I don't know why. I don't like (laughs) that she
0: and her mom switched underwear. I don't like that she was so judgmental of her underwear. I don't like that she went ass to ass with her own mother.
1: Famously, one time my family took a trip to LA for Christmas. Me and my brother, both being the biggest douchebags of all time, neither of us had packed underwear with the assumption that they would just buy us new underwear upon arrival. And when my mom found out that both of us had independently made that choice, she got so mad at us and was like, no, I'm not buying you new underwear. She goes, Thomas, you can share with your dad. And then my brother goes... And I just want to point out that this is laundered underwear. (laughs) My brother goes, I refuse to go dick to dick with my own father. (laughs) I think my mom cried. She was like, why must you talk to me like this? But
0: anyways, I hate that she went ass to ass. I also just really hate that she was like, I had no idea that my mom was a goddamn whore from the streets. (laughs) What is she, a madame? She (laughs) run a brothel over there? It's not that crazy. It's so funny to be like, how could this be comfortable?
1: Anyway, my giant-ass granny panties were ripping my asshole (laughs) apart, so we had to switch. But
0: your thong must be the uncomfortable one, you slut.
1: Yes. Anyway, Ashley, after reading this book, what did you think?
0: After reading this book, I had an absolute mental breakdown about what it was about Leander that was deeply appealing at any point in time. I think it was, one, just the fact that she already kind of had a platform. She had an avenue to a platform. She had a leg up because she knew people in the fashion industry already. So... She got the spotlight early and then just kept going. She was not best. She was first. She also was funny. She had like a unique take on clothes that I think people interpreted to mean that we should all discover our own individuality. And what she really meant was, no, please celebrate my individuality. And it all was Just her wanting glory and attention and to be told that she is interesting and smart and cool. There was like nothing else beyond that, but we gave her a lot of credit.
1: I fully agree. I think the other thing that this book really doubled down in my belief of is that if your style of humor is like in an ironic response to the tradition, you know what I mean? And I've done that. I had blog posts from college where it's all just take what they say and kind of do the opposite. It's a very easy humor, and I think it reads well in the moment because when you're saturated with a certain type of media, it's funny to see that parodied parody humor. Does not last long because it is topical. The thing I've learned from memoirs is what resonates is like honesty and earnestness and vulnerability. And I think when she was vulnerable and honest, I actually did like what she had to say. I think the rest, that was funny little witticism she had, felt trite and tired. This was one of those books that fell into that in the Tina Fey category of it was writing that was fresh and hot and relevant But
0: unfortunately, it failed to tap into the greater human condition. Yeah, it doesn't offer anything. And I think it actually helped me understand Lena Dunham's book more. These books are not for anyone besides themselves. They're not for anybody other than at a dinner party to be like, I actually am a published author too. Like, I'm not just a blogger. I have a book out. I'm quirky. I'm interesting. You want to know my thoughts. So here are my ramblings. They're not to help anybody. They're to be like, you love to look at me. Look at more of me.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know at the end of Squid Game when he's like... Rich people and poor people are the same. They're both bored. And you're like, um, poor people aren't bored. They're dying. <laughs> I feel like that's the Lena Dunham and Leander thing too. Of We all have equal problems. Mine is anxiety. The first time I went to day camp, I didn't have as many Twizzlers as everyone. And that was really tough and you should hear about it.
0: And they also do have real problems. But it's like ghost to talk about them because they still have to go back to their Upper East Side Christmas parties. She couldn't really talk about the struggle of anorexia and then like... Well, I don't think she knows. Do you think she knows to this day that she's anorexic? Yes
1: and no. I don't think she's resolved that in herself. I don't think she sees it as a struggle right now. I think she sees
0: it as a victory. That's actually really true. But I will say that's the problem of writing a memoir when you're 23 years old.
1: All right, you guys, this week on the Patreon, we have an extra special treat. We have an insider from the man Repeller business coming to talk about her experiences feeling overlooked and sad. True? That's true. Tune in, sign up, rate, review, subscribe. See you next week.